0: Hi, this is Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante. In episodes of this podcast, we usually take on a passage of Inferno so far, we haven't gotten to Purgatorio or Paradiso yeah, but usually Inferno from Dante's masterwork comedy. This episode is different. This episode is a look back through the first four cantos of Inferno. And I want to do several things in this and come back to things that I've skated over easily and acted as if I didn't even notice it. I kinda wanna look through the whole thing and look out across it. If you don't know this podcast, again, it walks through passages one by one of the comedy. You can find all the episodes if you go back to episode one of this podcast and you can walk all the way up to this point right here with us or you can just drop in right here and catch us as we look back over Canto's one through four of Inferno. Let me start with a plot review, just an easy plot review. Here's my review. (laughs) Ready? I'm going to read it to you. I wrote it out so that I could read it to you and I'm going to read it to you. Wood, Mountain, Beasts, Virgil, Prophecy, Self-Doubt, Cowardice, Beatrice, Heaven, Gate, Neutrals, Karen, Fear is Desire, Sleep, Sighing Babies, Harrowing of Hell, Great Spirits, Castle, Catalog of Grades, Nothing Shines. <laughs> See, wasn't that easy? Why did we spend all these episodes? What, what? How many episodes did we do? 21, 22 episodes? For gosh sake, look how easy that was. Oh my God. We can make up with that one more time. Our pilgrim wakes up in a wood. He doesn't know where he is. He starts to climb a mountain, a mountain that mm, somebody, Virgil, is going to say is the source of all of human joy. He's blocked on that slope by three beasts. He's got a foot problem, too. He's got one foot that's always dead or always the <laughs> other that's always in motion, which makes no sense how you climb a mountain. Oh my gosh, I went all through the allegory of that. He's blocked by three beasts, a leopard, a lion, and a she-wolf. He falls down the slope. Virgil appears. Years. Virgil says, I got to get out of here. But first, I'm going to tell you the future, not only of all of Italy, but also of you in this journey. Dante says, who am I? I can't do this journey. Am I Aeneas? And I Saint Paul, they went into the afterlife. Who am I? It seems like he's arguing modesty. Virgil corrects him and says, no, you're just a coward. And I got to tell you my whole story. So my whole story is I'm here because of Beatrice. Suddenly, we hear Virgil quoting Beatrice, who then quotes the Virgin, who then quotes Lucy. No, it's the other way around, right? Virgin, Beatrice quotes Lucy, who quotes the Virgin. I don't know. It's some incredible game of telephone that goes on there. Beatrice tells her whole story. We jump up to the very top of heaven. We see Beatrice sitting with Rachel in heaven. Oh my gosh, they, we come all the way back down. Virgil is, is sent off to do his bit and find Dante and save him. This motivates Dante. Nothing motivates Dante like Beatrice. The mere thought of her will get him going every single time. They walk. They find the gate of hell, the famous gate with the abandoned hope bit. They enter and they find a world of neutrals, of people who didn't choose. And in weirdly says they were never really alive and they're never dead, which, wow, is just strange. People who never made a decision in this life, following a flag and being bitten by wasps, they walk a little farther and come on Karen and Acarante or Karen, the river that crosses into the afterlife. Karen brings his boat out. Dante sees the boat, sees people crossing, and I guess faints. It says he falls asleep. I guess faints. Uh, He wakes up on the other shore. He doesn't quite know what all these people are over on this side of the shore. Well, it turns out there's a bunch of sighing babies and men and women. But more than that, Virgil explains that some people got to leave this place, but it is the first circle of hell. It is limbo. And in here, the great spirits of Homer, Horace, Ovid, Lucan—did I say that enough already? Homer, Horace, Ovid, Lucan arrive. They take a walk they talk about stuff that they don't say what they talked about they arrive at a castle with green grass and a little brook running around it they walk over the brook on as on dry land dante goes i guess up in the castle somehow that he gets a view down onto the crowd in the castle and he sees all of these historical figures all of these great philosophers many of whom he didn't even know he only knows through the writings of others he's undone by this he makes the claim that uh what I, what I say doesn't even come close to what I want to say. He comes down, it's just Virgil, and he, again, they walk on into a place where nothing shines. Okay, that's the plot. So let me talk about this in a different way. We have four cantos here. One, two, three, four. And they are highly structured. If you look back on this, you will see the structure, not just the plot line, but the architecture of them. Think about it this way. Canto 1 is all chaos. It's the wood, the mountain, the beast, the prophecies, the putting to death, the, the big dog, the little dog, and the greyhound that will come and put to death. the It's this whole canto of chaos. Canto 2 is a canto of order. It's a canto of rhetoric and rhetorical battles and getting rhetoric right and saying the right words to produce the right actions and Beatrice getting Virgil underway. Canto three, the neutrals, we're back to chaos. Unbelievable, stinging wasps, sucking maggots, the whole business, chaos. Canto four, limbo, we're back to order. We're back to the quiet people with the sad, grave eyes, speaking in the low voices, talking about poetry and philosophy and all the great thinkers, including three Islamic figures in the mix, which I made a great deal about last time. Look how we just did. Chaos, order, chaos, order. Or think about it this way. We started Canto 1 is all about being lost canto two is all about finding the right rhetoric canto three the neutrals is again about people who are lost and canto four is about people who have used language words philosophy or even history to their benefit they've talked their way out of battles they have fought battles they're greek philosophers so basically we have someone canto one who's lost canto two who We have a discussion amongst the learned. Canto 3, we have the lost, the neutrals. Canto 4, we have discussions amongst the learned. See? Do you see the architecture? Or think about it this way. Canto 1 is all despair, whereas Canto 2 is all hope. And Canto 3 is back to despair, and Canto 4 is hope. Or think about it this way. Canto 1 is all about smallness. One single man lost in a wood, trapped by bees, falling down a hill, one single man coming to save him. Canto 2 is all about greatness. Lucy and the Virgin and Rachel and Beatrice. Canto 3 is about smallness again. Both the smallness of the neutrals and the small petty ways they're punished with wasp stings. This kind of constant irritant, and their very small lives. And then we come to canto four, and it's about—it's suddenly about greatness, about these grand philosophical figures. Smallness, greatness, smallness, greatness. Do you see the architecture of these four cantos? It's unbelievable. And I bet if we just had a cup of coffee between the two of us, and we were just talking, I bet we could find more architectural details amongst these four cantos this poem is a giant edifice it is a giant edifice being created and if you think the architecture that i just explained to you thematically is tight or is unbelievably well done like a great cathedral wait just wait until we get forward the architecture is going to get amazing as we move forward through this thing So I just wanted to stop and give you that overview of some kind of, right now we're running on antinomies or opposites, chaos order, chaos order, or lost learning, lost learning, or despair, hope, despair, hope. We're running on opposites or antinomies. Later, the architecture is going to change and it's not going to be so oppositional. It's going to change and become metaphoric, thematic, there's going to be different ways the architecture gets expressed in the poem right now it seems to be running in the first four cantos in uh, from the wood to limbo in a kind of oppositional architecture okay here's another point those four cantos that we just went over are at least as i presented it an Uneasy mix of allegory and realism. I mean, listen, I, I I, paused on passages like the beasts and I treated it as an allegory, the three beasts on the slope, and I gave you all kinds of interpretations of that. I paused on the seven walls of the castle in limbo and I gave you a few interpretations of that. I paused on the brook and I gave you a couple, whether it's baptized or leaving behind this life or it's the brook of eloquence. I gave you a couple allegorical readings of that brook around that castle in limbo and then there are other times when it doesn't seem like it's it's allegorical. It just seems more like modern storytelling. It seems like it's just moving on forward. Again, the wood that Dante wakes up in, the mountain that he tries to climb, the beasts, the castle, that all seems very allegorical, like it's supposed to mean something beyond itself. Other bits, like when Beatrice tells her story in heaven, I was sitting with Rachel and Lucy came to me and she'd been visited by a gracious lady, that seems more like storytelling than allegory. And when we get to the neutrals and the flags and the one who made the great refusal, again, that seems like it's more storytelling. It's got a periphrastic hole in the middle of it, the one who made the great refusal. And I talked about all of the different people that could be, like even Pontius Pilate. I mean, I talked about that whole thing, that it's got this periphrastic hole in the middle of who is the guy that made the great refusal. But still, it, most of it, and Karen and his boat and coming across the swamp and his eyes and lit up in fire, rings of fire. That all seems more storytelling, and yet Karen and his boat has often been read as an allegory by many, many commentators, by an allegory about the soul's progress, or what blocks the soul's progress, or how the soul's progress is blocked when its fears become its desires. This is the problem. There are lots of ways to read the comedy. The comedy will support readings and there's a reason for that and i'll tell you what i think the reasons are in a minute but i haven't touched on this yet but i want to touch on it right here i've been talking to you about Allegorical readings and for like a better word, realist readings. Passages that seem more like storytelling. Passages that seem more like allegory. All of this has probably also got to use the fancy term an anagogical reading behind it. Anagogical from anagogy or the Greek word anagoge, which means an ascent or climbing up. An anagogical reading was a medieval strategy in which a text you take the physical details of the text, and the physical details revealed the spiritual struggle of the universe. So there's the, if we did an anagogical reading of the Aeneid, we would see that in fact uh, Aeneas is, the. I told you this about the Neoplatonic reading, that Aeneas represents the soul climbing toward its perfection. Or if we were really in a Christian tradition, we might say that Aeneas is the unclaimed Pagan soul that is moving closer and closer to its Roman redemption. So we would see an anagogical reading behind that. And all of this that I'm telling you, while I'm presenting it as an uneasy, um, uneasy sim- symbiosis of allegory and realism, an uneasy threading of a needle between allegory and realism, for most of the history of the comedy, it's been read anagogically and allegorically. Let me give you an example for this. Remember I told you a couple of episodes ago that I'm in this rather fancy uh, Italian, mostly Italian group on the comedy online, made up mostly of Dante scholars. And I, I want to pres- tell you what one of them said about the four great spirits who come to Dante. Okay, remember, he's standing in limbo, he sees the four great shades, Homer is first with his sword up, you know, he's got his sword out, and then comes Horus, and then Ovid, and then Lucan, and you know, here they come. This Italian professor said to me that this is how he reads it. Get ready, because it's not how I read it. Homer is the union of the soul and the body. Horus, the satirist, because he's satirical, because his wit is so sharp, is the disintegration of the soul and the body. And by that, I don't mean I don't mean disintegration like it evaporates. I mean disintegration like the pulling apart of the soul and the body in the snark of satire. Ovid is the constant change that the soul and the body the metamorphoses. The constant change of the soul and the body over time, and Lucan represents finally history as the great union of the soul and the body so his claim is that these four figures represent the four states in which the soul and the body can exist homer is the perfect balance horace is the imbalance of the soul and the body in satire oven is the transitory nature of the soul inside the body and lucan is the final step which is history is the great center that centers the soul and the body Listen to that. That's a long way from how I read those four figures. I read them as just <laughs> Homer is epic, and Horace is satire, and Ovid is elegy, and Lucan is history, and and then I made this whole thing about Dante is comedy, and, right? That is a full-on, not even an allegorical reading of those figures. That's an anagogical reading of those four figures, and honestly, the comedy will support it. The comedy will support readings that are that complex. Why? How? Let me offer you four reasons. Partly because of the comedy's distance from us. I mean, after all, this thing was completed in 1320. I mean, it, it, it is so far removed from us now, here, 700 years later. It is so far removed from us that there is a great deal of distance there that projection can happen that opacity can happen we're looking through film on film on film on film uh, we can't even see it oh, man i'm thinking of wallace stevens right now i'm thinking about the poet uh, the poem postcards from the volcano in which he claims that that's got the best first line children picking up our bones children picking up our bones will never know basically what we said and thought and how we lived and mostly what they won't know is that the look of things is how we saw the look of things and what he means by that stevens means like that is that The history of all of these people behind you imagining and thinking about the world creates the way you imagine and think about the world, even though you're not even aware of it. So given that, there are 700 years of picking up the bones between us and comedy, and it allows for a great many various viewpoints to enter in there because humans have had different worldviews and points of view in those 700 years. Okay. Two, partly because the comedy is very craft. The comedy is a piece in which the craft, the art that Dante is practicing allows for multiplicity. It is written in a style that I know it seems weird, right? Why would a theological document allow multiplicity? Wouldn't it just hammer toward a single truth? But that's not the comedy. The comedy that Dante wrote, the craft of it is to allow a kind of opening of readings and this homer Horace, Ovid, lucan which i seem to be fascinated with right now this this reading of these figures is just as valid as my rather pedantic reading of them as just four different kinds of poetry it's valid because the comedy's architecture is so strong chaos order chaos order loss rhetoric loss philosophy despair hope despair hope etc the architecture is so strong that it will support it it will hold it all and more Okay, here's third reason partly because there have been so many commentaries written from so many different perspectives on the comedy. We now see the comedy. You're starting to see the comedy through the commentary because I'm giving it to you. I see the comedy through the commentary. We all do. We approach it. Even if you did this on your own and sat in your chair with the Hollander's translation, you would read the Hollander's notes and you would encounter the commentary from 700 years. There have been 700 years and no one In 1650, thought in the same way that I do in 2020. There have been 700 years of various commentary approaches to this poem. And that thickness is surrounding the poem constantly. Here's my fourth reason, and the most important reason of them all. The practice of medieval poetry Invites the reader to become almost as creative as the writer. This is not the practice of Henry James. Henry James does not want you to be as smart as he is, but Dante invites you in as a creator of meaning by leaving so many threads hanging, by leaving so many little bits and hints like what I say doesn't come close to what I want to say as at the end of Limbo. Those little hints allow me entrance into the poem and my entrance into the poem allows me to do interpretive dances on it. That's the Kind of the whole open endedness of medieval poetry. If you know anything about the Canterbury Tales, if you know anything about Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, if you know anything about medieval literature, you will know that part of the point of the craft is to allow the reader access to the creative act itself through the act of reading it and thinking about it this is a time before social media before tv before schedules before time clocks before punch cards before i don't 401ks this is a time when anyone who would have read the comedy and admittedly it's a slim 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 minority of the population anybody who would have read the comedy had the time to read the comedy and think about it and the author of the comedy of the canterbury tales of sir Gawain and the green knight uh all medieval authors are asking you To enter a space where you read it and then you puzzle it out. You think it through. You become as creative in your interpretation, almost, as creative in your interpretation as they do writing the thing itself. That's the invitation of medieval poetry. It's wild from a modern perspective because we like to nail things down. We like to get them on calendars and punch them into a date and make sure our, you know our checkbook balances. And uh, that's not this world. Okay, my fourth point and my last look back over the first four cantos. I wanna go back to a line in Canto 2. Line 72, it's Beatrice. Beatrice is talking to Virgil and she's explaining how she got here and why she's sending Virgil on this mission. And I read this line and blew past it, knowing that I wanted to come back and say something more about it. And I blew right past the line that says, and here it is, love moved me and makes me speak. I believe that that line from Beatrice is the prime motivation of the comedy. Love moved me and makes me speak. How can I say this to you? Beatrice violates all theological law. How can the blessed be in hell? And okay, let's assume the blessed can descend to hell. It's not just run of the mill people like Beatrice. Come on, if somebody's going to come down to hell, it's got to be St. Michael or St. <laughs> Lucy. It's got to be somebody important. St. Thomas Aquinas comes down here and cuts all their heads off. It can't be Beatrice. She's not nobody. She's not a saint. Come on. How does she get down here? And by Beatrice's appearing to Virgil in hell, it violates every law that the church has ever laid down about how the universe operates. We blew past it as like, oh yeah, sure, Beatrice comes down to hell. How would that exactly work? How would the blessed get to hell? How would they descend into it? And when they're there, what exactly, wouldn't, The sheer light that comes off of them, you'll find out later that the blessed are so bright you can't really even look at them. How would the light that they emanate even exist in hell? It's violating every theological law. There's no practice of the church, no doctrine of the church that allows the saved, the redeemed, the blessed to descend into hell and have conversations with the damned. It just doesn't happen. And yet what she says is love moved me and makes me speak. She even makes this claim at one point, right? Remember that the gracious lady in heaven can break the firm decrees. So let me play my trump card the comedy is about the various states of human love, even in Fairnow, even here. And here's the thing that's so wild about love. Remember, I've talked endlessly about the imagination as a fenced pasture and you got to move the fence. You got to figure out what to do with your fence. I've said this endlessly about how you've got to move your fence because you get the world laid out in a certain way. And then something happens. I think my sheep and goats were my imagery and then a horse walks by and you got to figure out what to do with the horse because you've got your fence around your pasture and you know i've said the whole world she goes remember all that here's the thing love always moves the fence it is the dominant reason you move the fence if you think there's only way to make bolognese sauce or beef bourguignon (laughs) If you really love Buff bourguignon or bolognese or if you really love some cooking item, buttercream, and you find somebody else who's making a great buttercream, if you really love it, you'll move the fence. If you're just in love with yourself, then it's not really love love moves the fence every time it causes the fence to move and here the fence that got moved is the theological law that the redeemed can't enter hell and wouldn't enter hell for any reason there's no call for this there's no theological rationale for this there's no reason for this and how would virgil get pulled out of hell we know how other souls were harrowed (laughs) as i keep turning that into a verb we know how other souls were pulled out of hell by christ how How would Virgil work? How would those decrees be broken? Why? Why would the decrees be broken that Virgil the damned one gets to get out of his punishment and go on this walk with Dante? And not only this walk across hell, as you will see, Virgil ascends Mount Purgatory. How would that happen? How would he be allowed through the gate of Purgatory? How? Love. Love sent Beatrice there. And this is the bigger one dante's love of virgil dante's love of the great philosophers and the great poets causes him to move the fence in the canto of limbo number four this is dante's scheme okay this is this is this is the basic theology that dante's laying out the will is the source of evil and good that's what he wants the will is the source of evil and good notice as a medieval not the devil (laughs) you'll find out. In Inferno, the devil can't actually make you do it. The will, your will, your choices are the source of evil and good. And here's the scheme. The neutrals didn't choose. Those in limbo couldn't choose, right? It's very neat. Those who didn't choose, those who couldn't choose. Now we're going to come upon in the next canto, the lustful. In other words, those who chose badly. So didn't choose, couldn't choose, chose badly and thus we get babies in limbo they couldn't choose but amongst the babies and all those other figures are the great philosophers that dante loved and the great poets well he didn't know homer he knew virgil the great poets that he loves dante doesn't and this is my point dante doesn't know what to do with them because of his great love for them. And his great love for them, his great honor, the treasure of these writers has caused him to rethink the very fence he himself set up. That is the will as the only moral force in the world. And so for Dante, love also moved the fence. It made Limbo beautiful. It made it a castle with green grass Yes, sad grave eyes. Yeah, but great authority in their appearances who stand around a castle and talk about philosophy and talk about poetry. Great figures from history, from the Trojans, from the Romans, philosophers, poets, geometers, astronomers, doctors, Hmm. (laughs) Islamic figures. His great love for these people caused him to warp the very notion of what limbo is because in the end and we're going to see this over and over again love moves the fence it is the dominant reason why the world changes what it looks like because in the end you me all of us open our hearts And that's what does it. How many people have done this right? Speaking as a gay man, how many people have done this with their gay children that they thought that homosexuality was outside the fence? Then they met their own child who was gay, or they met a person who they loved who was gay. And what did they do? Either they held to their fence or they opened the fence because of love. Love changes the very notion of the world. And over and over again in comedy, love will move the fence. And this is why I am no longer dissatisfied with Canto Four of Limbo, because now I see it. I see it as an act of love on Dante's part. He doesn't know how to reconcile this. And listen, I don't either if I if I were he. I wouldn't know how to reconcile this. This is what the theology teaches. This is what's true. This is what the church teaches. This is what I think. This is how I got the whole universe laid out. This is the whole thing. And Oh my God. God, here's Aristotle, and here's this guy that wrote this work that is the basis of the great theologian of the church, St. Thomas Aquinas' work. Here are these figures that, oh, some of them I don't even know. If only I could read them. If only I could read Democrites. If only I could find these people and read them because this is what I want to do. And so in the end, I don't know what to do except make Limbo beautiful. And we come out of all that nastiness with the neutrals because Dante, of course, doesn't want anybody to be neutral, given the war that he himself is in the middle of. We come out of that and we come into this scene and it seems hideously ambivalent until you think about Beatrice and Beatrice's line, love moved me and makes me speak. And then you realize, all right. She broke the bounds of heaven and got all the way to hell because love moved me and makes me speak. Dante broke the bounds of limbo and made it a castle with water, with fresh water and green grass. Not so tough a place (laughs) because love made him move the fence. Okay, so that's the whole story of Cantos 1 through 4. That's where we are right now. And we are about to step off in the next episode of Walking with Dante into Canto 5, the second ring of hell. The lustful. Oh, it's one of my favorite Cantos in the Higher comedy, certainly one of the top five in Inferno. Oh, Canto 5. Oh, so much fun ahead with the Lustful. How could you not have fun with the Lustful? So subscribe, join, join us on the walk with the Pilgrim Dante as we walk across the known universe. And if you don't mind, rate this podcast, give it a rating, and oh drop a comment. I'm doing a lot of work here, so put a little work on your part drop a comment it would be really helpful to me in the google or apple analytics if you drop a comment in either of those places and otherwise come back next time because we're gonna hit the lustful and they're gonna hit us and if you thought there was ambiguity and ambivalence in the canto 4 in limbo just wait until the winds of lust pick up see you next time